I'm here with Dawn Eden. Uh, she's recently written a book, uh, My Peace I Give You. Uh, Dawn, it's great to have you here uh, with us. Thanks so much, Father. It's great to be here. And your book uh, is quite a, uh, is very interesting and very, uh, I think it's very relevant to today's world. It speaks of uh, sexual abuse and healing from that. You know, I just wanted to jump into, uh, can you talk about your own healing in your personal story? Like what helped you, how did your faith help you to heal and how did maybe therapy or others help you to heal? Well, thank you for asking, Father. Certainly my healing came about uh, through the love of Jesus Christ. So through my conversion, uh, I first began to know the love of Christ at the age of 31 uh, after having been uh, an agnostic for most of my adult life. I had grown up Jewish. Uh, So that was back in October 1999 uh, when I had the grace of conversion. Um, And then uh, when I entered into uh, the fullness of faith, uh, entering the Catholic Church, Easter Vigil 2006, I also began to experience greater healing. But in terms of really healing from the wounds of childhood sexual abuse, I would say that there were two sta- two major stages in my faith journey. Uh, the first was simply knowing that God loved me and realizing that there must be some meaning to everything that I went through in my life. Everything uh, that God permitted me to, to suffer must have meant something in divine providence. Once I knew that God loved me, I knew that I couldn't take the fact that I had been abused as a sign that somehow uh, I was punished by God, uh, because God never positively wills evil. Uh, He only permits evil uh, because he can bring forth a good uh, from it. Um, But just knowing that God didn't positively will uh, the uh, evils that were done to me really helped me. But then there was this other stage which really took time and took uh, a lot of um let me ask you because um, a lot of people uh, wrestle with that question of of experiencing and coming to know God's love. How did you get to that point? What was a real breakthrough for you there? Well, I had been a seeker for a long time, uh, but i I felt instinctively through my twenties at a time when I was suffering from depression, which i now know was undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder from the abuse. Even while I was seeking, I had a sense that faith was a gift and that it hadn't yet been given to to me. Um, And I really do believe now that God gives faith when you are open to it and that God works on you through this whole time of preparation. Uh, God is always trying to engage us in dialogue. I'm speaking in terms of the time uh, even before one is converted. God keeps knocking you know, at, at, at the door, and then every time we open it the slightest c- crack, then he begins to, begins to uh, enter into a closer dialogue until finally the moment when 
when is really ready. So in terms of God's dialoguing with me that led to my conversion, well, I was a rock journalist, and so I wasn't around a lot of uh, Christians who, who might uh, lead me to faith. So the way that uh, God uh, really began to uh, get through to me was through this uh, experience that I had one day when I was interviewing a rock musician who was not a Christian uh, musician, and I just thought I'd ask him, what was he reading these days? He happened to be reading a novel by G.K. Chesterton called The Man Who Was Thursday. And I had no idea who Chesterton was. I just thought, I'll pick up this book so that I can read it and then impress this musician the next time he's in town. So I went out and, and picked up this novel, and just having no idea that Chesterton was this great Anglican convert to the Catholic faith. And in reading this novel, I received a picture of the church that I had never received before. I had always thought that... Um, that the church was really about conformity and just everybody thinking alike. And I was desperate to have my own identity. The, in fact, I, I do believe that the greatest uh, wound of childhood sexual abuse is the wound to the child's identity uh, because a, a sexual abuse thrives upon lies. The abuser lies to the victim and the victim in trying to cope with the evil that's been done to her, often ends up living a lie. So I had uh, taken in this lie that said that I wasn't valuable for who I was. I was only valuable for what I did. And that caused me to build this false uh, self uh, where I had built this protective shell uh, around myself and couldn't be... um, real with people, um, because I was really trying to protect um, myself. Um, So I was desperate to have my own identity, but I thought that identity came through rebellion. What Chesterton was suggesting in his novel was that, in fact, the true rebellion isn't the rebellion of just uh, destroying things. The true rebellion is the rebellion of truth and beauty against a world that's fallen into darkness. For Chesterton, as as for uh, any Christian looking at the world, uh, the world has been in rebellion since uh, the fall of Adam and Eve. So to be a rebel now means to rebel against the rebellion. It's the counterinsurgency, uh, so to speak. Uh, so I was very intrigued by this reading Chesterton's novel um, because uh, I had no idea that that Christians could be rebels. So that got me interested in first reading more Chesterton and then eventually wanting to read what had inspired Chesterton, which was the Psalms and the Gospels. And it was through reading those that the door of my heart opened to the point uh, where I had a conversion uh, experience, reading Romans 5.1, reading, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the moment that I read that, I began to feel that peace, that sense that uh, Augustine and also C.S. Lewis talks about, where when you begin to have faith, you begin the journey while still on earth towards heaven. You get this foretaste Mm -hmm. 
of of heaven. Um, and so that made me want to chase that peace where I led and where, I mean, chase that peace where it led. And ultimately, uh, thank God, uh, I was able to chase that peace into the heart of the Catholic Church. Right. So it was kind of the idea of being part of a, a counterinsurgency. Yes, that's right. And then it was this idea of peace that, that brought you. Yes. Okay. Um, what is your educational background? I was a communications major at New York University, uh, but really a lot of my education just came from many years as a rock journalist. I started being a published rock journalist uh, at the age of 17 as a freshman at NYU, and then I kept doing that uh, through uh, my 20s. Um, for uh, magazines such as the British music magazine Mojo uh, and Billboard and uh, ultimately uh, for record labels. I was a pop music historian uh, interviewing uh, 60s rock acts such as the Hollies and Harry Nilsson and, and Del Shannon. Um, and uh, through that, I picked up some good writing skills, which have stood me in very good stead now that I'm, uh, as a, a Catholic, uh, studying theology and uh, working uh, towards a, a pontifical licentiate and then a, a doc- doctorate, Lord willing. Right. And I've got to say that about your, your blog and your first blog that you wrote. I, I haven't seen your new one yet, but... Yeah, I was always impressed by your insights and uh, writing skills. And that's something like you you just picked up with a lot of practice, or did that industry te- teach you certain methods of writing? Or? Well, I would say that I picked up writing with a lot of practice, but I also come from a family of writers. Uh, my great aunt, uh, Alma Denny, at the age of 96, was, she had been published all her life, but at the age of 96, she finally got published in Reader's Digest. <laughs> that was that was some years ago. So I certainly had some inspiration. Um, just to return to what I was wanting to tell you about, the second moment of conversion, I, I mentioned that the first moment of real healing for me, I should say, was when I realized that God loved me. But then there was a second moment that happened when I was a Catholic. And what was leading up to this moment was this sense that even though I had chased that peace of God that I had felt when reading Romans 5.1, I had chased that peace into the Catholic Church. Uh, I knew that once I was in the church, there was nowhere else to go. I was home. Still, I, although no longer uh, having the very harmful depression that I had had before, uh, I still suffered from anxiety, and I would also suffer flashbacks and other symptoms of PTSD. And so the challenge for me at that point was, how do I live with this anxiety? How do I live with these flashbacks now that I'm a Catholic? Um, Because there must be some good that God wishes me to receive from this if I'm still having it. But, it, you know, certainly you can't say that pain feels good when you have it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be pain. (laughs) But where is the joy underneath this? And I discovered that joy while I was on an Ignatian retreat uh, that was given uh, by... Uh, an uh, oblate of the Virgin Mary, uh, who they specialize in Ignatian retreats, and this was in the summer of 2010. Uh, in an Ignatian retreat, uh, you know, Saint Ignatius 
as as you know, uh, Father, uh, really kind of made mysticism available to everyone in a sense, uh, because uh, unlike the kind of Teresa of Avila mystics who are who have you know uh, visions uh, on an Ignatian retreat, even if you aren't able to have such visions, you can ask God to use your imagination so that when images come to your imagination, you can ask God, what does he wish to show you through this? And with an experienced spiritual director, you can learn what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you in that way. So on this retreat, while I was praying before the tabernacle, I had an image come to me of the Eucharist in the tabernacle as being like the center of this great uh, figure, kind of like a bicycle wheel with rays like spokes going out from every direction and going out through all the earth and taking up everyone and everything into its embrace and bringing everything back to the center, to the Eucharist. And as I prayed on that and asked what asked God, what did that mean? What I realized was that my wound was that I felt that even though I was um, completely belonging to God in the present, I felt that there were times from my past life when I hadn't belonged to God, and that's when these evils had had been done to me, and I felt that these evils were somehow meaningless because I didn't yet know to offer them up. And what I realized at that moment was that Christ, who is really present for me in the Eucharist, is, as Thomas Aquinas puts it, Christus passus, Christ who suffered. He has always had a will to suffer for us since before the beginning of time. He has actually, in history, suffered for us. And now, when he is really present for us in the Eucharist, he is, in some sense, the product of his suffering. It's because he bears the wounds of his passion, wounds that are now glorified, that uh, his wounds um, heal us. And I realized that when I am really present for him, I am the Don who suffered. And, you know, Father, what does the past really mean anyway? The past doesn't exist anymore except in so much that we exist and that, that we are in some sense the product of what's been done to us. So I realized that when I am really present for the for Christ who is really present in the Eucharist, then whatever of the past is left in me uh, becomes divinized, so to speak. I'm still a creature, of course. I'm, I'm not God. But uh, as much of Christ as is in me through my baptism, through the indwelling of the, whole, uh, of the Holy Trinity from my baptism, then, then because we are body and soul together, that's what makes the person, then whatever of these wounds that are left in my bodily experience through, you know, the flashbacks and the anxiety of the post-traumatic stress, Christ is with me in that too. And that is all touched by his grace. And that changed me because before I had felt that my suffering was just like an arrow going 
down, that it was just dragging me down and it was toxic. Now, even if I still feel some of the effects of the post-traumatic stress, it's no longer toxic. It's now an arrow going up instead of weighing me down, even if it's still uncomfortable or painful, uh, it can't really harm me. It can only purify me and draw me closer to Christ and make me more fit uh, for heaven. And once I had that message, I wanted to learn how was this lived by the saints. Um, I knew that there were some saints who had suffered sexual abuse. As I did research for my piece I give you, I found that there were many more saints who had suffered that than I had thought. And I wanted to find out how did they live the passion and the resurrection of Christ in their lives. Uh, so it was a joy to research that in researching my piece I give you, and it's a joy now to share that with others. Did you also, like, go to therapy or have a good friend or something to help you? I had a good spiritual director, uh, thank God. And uh, I, in my piece I give you, I have uh, a reader's guide at the end that talks about uh, therapy and spiritual direction. What I believe is that certainly for people who are having trouble functioning in daily life or who are having serious problems in their relationships with others, they should definitely uh, consider therapy. Um, but those, even those who are, are not necessarily candidates for therapy can still be helped by spiritual direction. Uh, Pope Benedict said that every Catholic should have a spiritual director. Now, I've asked priests about that, and priests say that Practically speaking, it's probably not possible for everyone to have a spiritual director who spends like an hour with them once a month like mine does. But in fact, what priests have pointed out to me is that what Pope Benedict probably meant was that everyone should have a spiritual director or at least a regular confessor, even if you can't uh, find a, a priest to see you regularly for direction, uh, you can still uh, go to the same priest for confession and really grow through that. Uh, I should also mention that there are uh, some lay people who are qualified to be spiritual directors, and I mention that in my piece I give you, but I do mention that uh, for someone who's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, it's hard enough to... Um, to find um, uh, to find a, a priest who has experience uh, helping people who, who have suffered those kinds of wounds. But with lay people who generally have even less, um, I shouldn't say even less, let me rephrase that, but with lay people who generally have less theological training uh, as well as, as perhaps less psychological training uh, than a priest, um, they are... Uh, less likely to be able to help uh, victims of abuse than priests. So personally for you, then, you did do a lot of therapy that helped with sort of a natural means? Or? I had been I had been in therapy for many years prior to my conversion. I did not have a good experience with that. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my piece I, I give you, that uh, it's it's very important to see a therapist who has a true Christian understanding, preferably Catholic under, understanding, of the of the human mind. Um, unfortunately, a lot of therapists 
have this very Freudian or Jungian understanding. And for me, prior to my conversion as a victim of childhood sexual abuse, I was taking certain pathologies into my behavior that caused me to act out sexually. Not every victim of sexual abuse will do this. I did. And seeing a Freudian therapist only um, aggravated my wounds because this therapist was telling me that I would be fulfilled by acting out sexually. Um, so uh, for, for, for me, um, I was not helped by therapy prior to my conversion. After my conversion, I did see uh, some Catholic therapists who were helpful. Um, more recently, I started uh, seeing one occasionally uh, for maintenance, which has been helpful. Your mileage may vary, so to, so to speak. Um, some people will need therapy. Some people won't. Um, as I said, if uh, someone is having trouble functioning in daily life, uh, then they really should uh, see a therapist mm -hmm. as well as getting direction. But the most that I've been helped is through the spiritual help. Of direction. It's not a substitute for therapy. You shouldn't see a spiritual director if you just want advice on, you know, communication skills uh, or simple coping skills. Uh, a therapist will help you more with that. But if your problem is really more just how do I live with these spiritual wounds, then a spiritual director is the one to help. Yeah, I wanted to Get back a little more specifically about uh, the discovering the love of God. You read the Chesterton, and and uh, and you were found a peace in the Catholic Church. But what about like discovering a deeper relationship with Christ? Uh, what helped you with that? Because I would think, like you talk about the wound as being um, this feeling of worthlessness. How could and I would think that would translate to how does Jesus love me? How did you cross that divide? divide? That's a, a great question. Um, I would say that as far as uh, crossing the divide in, in terms of feeling that Jesus does love me, uh, I would say that um, r regularly receiving the Eucharist, preferably daily, uh, has helped me. Adoration has helped me. Regular confession has hel has helped and i mean confession even just apart from spiritual direction just being washed of my sins on a regular basis is a great help for growing in the grace that helps us to really internalize uh god's love in chapter 6 of my peace i give you i talk about a holy woman who had to learn to really internalize the fact that God loved her and that God had forgiven her. Uh, this woman is Dorothy Day, uh, who is not officially a saint yet, but uh, the U.S. bishops recently voted to promote her cause for sainthood. Uh, she was uh, a former socialist, and uh, the and she had gone through this great conversion in which she realized uh, that um, the world was not going to be converted through godless means, uh, that the true social order was not the social order of these uh, utopians who were trying to create uh, a heaven on earth without God, meaning the socialists, the communists. Uh, she realized that the true social order was the order of Christ the, the king. And uh, so as a Catholic, 
uh, she uh, being received in, into the church, um, she had already been baptized, but she confessed her sins, and one of the sins that she confessed, the one that she regretted more than anything, was that prior to her conversion, uh, she had uh, she had lost a child through abortion. And even um, after confessing this, she still worried that God really hadn't uh, forgiven her because she couldn't imagine how she could be forgiven uh, for that. And in my piece I give you, I talk about how uh, with the help of a wise confessor, she came to internalize God's love and forgiveness. And it was when she realized this that she was able to become that much more effective sharing God's love with others. Uh, St. Paul uh, says in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, you know, blessed be God, the God of all, all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. When we realize the love of God, it makes us um, that much more powerful as conduits of God's grace to share with others. And in my piece I give you, I talk uh, specifically about saints such or, or holy people such as Dorothy Day and also uh, saints uh, who suffered uh, abuse in childhood such as, such as Blessed Margaret of Costello, uh, lesser known ones such as Blessed Carolina Kozka, who became real lights to others. I really want to encourage people who have suffered any kind of wound that you don't have to stay wrapped up in your own pain, no matter how um, much pain you may still feel, no matter even if you're still feeling post-traumatic stress. As long as you recognize your need for God, then God's grace is working in you. And whatever light you have in you, no matter how small that little flame may be, you have something to share with others. And as you share that light with others, then that, that light of grace will grow within yourself. And I think that leads to an interesting point, too, about uh, you know, our whole culture – and some of it's been very beautiful, good development about this kind of turning to the subject, you know, we've had in modern philosophy. and But also, there's obviously a bad component of the narcissism we see today. What Can you describe that? Uh, you know, because uh, if a person has to heal from something, he does have to have a lot of introspection, mm-hmm. has to be sensitive to himself and what's going on. But I know sometimes I think about that every now and then. It's like, man, we really are focused on ourselves a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you have you experienced like a, a more turning outward in your journey? I think that in our social media society, we have to really work on turning outward. I just read uh, in the New York Times that about eighty percent of tweets on Twitter are what's called me-forming, not informing, but me-forming, and informing people about what am I thinking. And thinking about that made me think twice before tweeting as often as I had been (laughs) tweeting. Because in the social media culture, uh, there's a lot of, um, the same article said that there's a lot of envy going around because people in 
me forming feel that they have to tell everyone else what a great life they have. So then when we read someone else's Facebook posts, read someone else's uh, t- tweets, then we think, gosh, everyone else is having such a better life than I am <laughs> um, because of this whole social media uh, culture of everyone trying to put their very um, most impressive face out uh, for other people. So I think we really have to fight to not be wrapped up in ourselves. And I think that a great answer to being wrapped up in, in one's, oneself uh, is to go to mass, go to adoration. You know, I suppose someone could go to those things just thinking, oh, it's just me and Jesus, me and Jesus. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, the, the whole nature of our of our faith and the workings of grace is is communal. Yes, Jesus does want to be in immediate relationship with each of us. But once we are united to Jesus, then we love everyone Jesus loves. He gives us the grace to do that. We don't do that human, like we can't do it through our human power. Uh, but in Christ, we we can. And and it's something where we have to work at it to co- in terms of... Um, in terms of cooperating with the grace that God gives us to uh, to work at it. And, you know, the more that you do fight the me-forming culture and reach out to others, the more healing you will receive. And do you feel very much a sense of mission and, and purpose to, to get your message out there? Does that really drive you? Yes, it really does drive me. And I've, in fact, since writing my piece I give you, I've felt called to a consecrated uh, vocation in the world. And that's something that I'm now discerning with my spiritual director. My hope right now is to be under private vows to my uh, diocesan bishop, private vows of of, of obedience and and chastity. Um, Something akin to a a consecrated virgin uh, vocation. Um, I I feel a great sense of mission because I feel that writing this book has enabled me to live the mystery of spiritual motherhood in a way that I never had before. And the more that I am a spiritual mother to others, the closer I feel to to God. And it's something that's very dynamic. You know, it's... Um, I feel that the way that God's grace is working in me is it's not where I do a certain uh, amount of reaching out to others and then God gives me a certain amount of grace and then I can just be on my own. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, the um, it feels like the whole point of the grace that I'm receiving is to share it. And I'm really feeling what St. Augustine says about prayer as that w- we pray that God will increase our desire uh, for him, because our desire is only going to be satisfied in heaven. It's not going to be satisfied in this life. But there is an increased joy in this life just from having that desire. You know, when I think back to when I was suffering from uh, suicidal depression before my conversion, um, I think back to feeling numb. And in my piece I give you, I talk about um, 
some of the things that people do when they feel numb, uh, and among the things that people do when they when they feel numb is that people um, can self harm, and part of of that. Uh, temptation to cut is the temptation to feel something because one has so detached from one's true self or one's true feelings out of fear of feeling pain that one feels compelled as though one needs to feel physical pain in order to feel anything at all. I remember what that was like and thank God I've been healed from that, uh, from those temptations in, in Christ. Um, but now when I feel this desire, even though I know that this desire won't be, uh, satisfied in this life, I just thank God for having that God shaped vacuum in my heart. I thank God for have, having that hole for, that no human being, uh, can f- fill, uh, because, there's um, a joy in that that I would not have imagined before I was in Christ. Can you describe that as spiritual motherhood that you feel you've experienced and maybe feel called to, to share in more? Spiritual motherhood is a desire to be fruitful in Christ. John Paul II talks about this uh, in his encyclical on the dignity and vocation of, of women, um, or actually I think it's an apostolic uh, letter, um, Mulieris Dignitatem. And actually what John Paul says is that every human being is called to spiritual parenthood, including those who are biological parents, because parents the meaning of being a parent isn't just to give physical life. Parents cooperate with God in giving spiritual life to their children as well uh, through uh, raising their children in the faith. And more than that, we're not just called to love those who love us. We're also called to be reaching out to the, to the wider church and to the world at, at large. Uh, so for me, spiritual motherhood means constantly fighting the urge to look inward, as you were saying. I, not, I mean, not that I shouldn't, you know, look inward in terms of trying to to find uh, find my identity through God dwelling in me, but just that being a spiritual mother means that I have to fight being wrapped up in myself and learn how to... Um, be Christ for others, and certainly Mary is is our model uh, for that. In that, uh, Mary, as as a human person, uh, Christ, although fully man, was a and is a d- divine person. Mary, as a human person, shows us what it means to imitate uh, the love of Christ as a human person and through her motherhood bearing Christ within her and and also having given her yes and it's a, a yes that lasts that that lasted throughout her earthly life and she is still saying yes to Christ today you know that's that's my model as well and has your journey and healing has that 
changed? How has that changed your relationship with others? I mean, in your interacting with others, and has it been more loving? You've grown in compassion, acceptance, or what has changed? I really am starting to like other people more. You know, when you read about the saints, what you find is that the saints were present for other people. They brought Christ's presence to others, and they did that through being humanly present. When I speak about being Christ for other people, I don't mean not being human for other people. Christ was fully uh, was was fully man as well as being fully God. And if you read Christ's conversations with people, particularly in the Gospel of John, where he has a lot of one-on-one conversations with people, you see that he was always very attentive to what the person he was speaking with needed, and he met each person where they were. So in learning how to do that in my life, I'm finding that God is surprising me a lot because humanly speaking, you know, what I've realized is that I'm, my natural tendency is often to be selfish and to think, well, because I don't click with this person right away, I'm going to avoid this person and just be with people whom I have a, with whom I have a natural affinity. But what wanting to live spiritual motherhood does for me is it makes me try to push myself so that if I don't feel a natural affinity uh, for someone, I hang in there and I see, you know, I try to see what does, how does God want me to be present for this person? And what I find, you know, whenever I I do that is that, um, except in, you know, the, the very rare cases where, you know, someone's just mean, which is really not that often in life, thank God. Um, it seems Especially since you moved out of New York. Right? Well, that's, <laughs> oh, I don't want to knock New York. There are some wonderful people in, 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 in New York. And actually, I live in Washington now. So, so, you know, I'm not sure if you can, if you can say that Washington has any better a reputation for niceness. Um, but really, what, what I find is that God keeps surprising me by bringing me to see great beauty in other people whom I, I wouldn't have in whom I wouldn't have noticed the beauty before. And I would think, too, that, you know, kind of, you know, in healing, you can let down the wall and people can really kind of get to know you on a deeper level. Yes. I would think that yes. would help friendships to grow. Yes, exactly, Father. It really has uh, helped friendships to to grow because I'm able to give more of myself and to uh, to be more who I am. And it's so funny, Father, because it's just the opposite of what I thought would happen when I became a Christian. I thought that uh, that Christianity was like uh, the Borg on Star Trek The Next Generation. You know, the Borg is that universal mind that uh, uh, that controls, I guess, a whole planet and and uh, its its motto is prepare to be assimilated. You know, I... And resistance is futile. Yes, yes, that's the other half of it. Yes, and, and it was true for me. You know, if, if Christianity is the Borg, then I certainly found out resistance is futile. But but it's not uh, the Borg in that I didn't lose my identity. I really became who I who I was, and I interestingly enough have the advantage or disadvantage of having a lot of 
videos available of me before my conversion interviewing rock bands where I can see myself and, you know, I try to love my former self, you know, and, and not be just put off, you know, wishing that I were, had, had known Christ sooner. But, but still, I see how I was with people back then and I realized that grace has done things to me, making me more genuine with people and making me enjoy people and, and, and rejoice in people more than, than I had ever thought possible. I still, just for the life of me, I cannot imagine you on the rock scene. And, <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't get that part. How, how were you ever attracted to the whole rock and roll, the bar scene and all that? I was attracted to that. First of all, I loved the music, uh, especially uh, 60s pop music, the music that was from just before I was born. Uh, and... Uh, I loved going to concerts. You know, concerts are like transcendent experiences. I was talking to one of my fellow theology students about this at Dominican House of Studies. He had just gone to a concert, and he was just still raving about how great it was. And it is true that there's a kind of experience that you can have at a concert that you can't really have anywhere else. Um, It's not uh, the same as being, you know, a at mass or at adoration and having the, the real presence of, of Christ, it's but but there's a kind of ecstasy uh, to it, um, and uh, at the same time, even though I loved getting that kind of ecstasy, uh, now when I go to concerts, I uh, even though I can still kind of get worked up in that when I do, which is not very often. Not very often do I go to concerts now, but at the same time now when I go, I realize that although there is something at the concert that I don't uh, get at at church, I am so glad that after going to this concert on Saturday night, I can go to church on Sunday morning and find the peace that I was really longing for all that time when I was in the music scene. And I, I mean, I love music too. I love I love seventies rock and things. Uh, and, and but I've noticed I've really gotten to like a lot of uh, Christian pop and a lot of Christian praise and worship. And I do notice the difference after I listen to that as opposed to other stuff. It really it leaves me in a better place. Have you do you, have you listened to like Christian music? I have recently started listening to the Christian station in Washington uh, D.C. And what I find is that you you really notice the difference between the warmth and the light in that music and the dark edge to non-Christian music. Having said that, you know, there are still some uh, non-Christian records that I used to listen to uh, that I still think are just gorgeous. I mean, some of the better known ones that I can think of are things like... Uh, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album, uh, or uh, the Kinks' Village Green Preservation Society uh, album, uh, cer- certain kind of Baroque pop masterpieces. But the reason why I now realize they're beautiful is because those Baroque pop masterpieces, like Walk Away Renee by The Left Bank, uh, or... or um, 
or Never My Love by the Association. Uh, those are great because they came out of a Christian culture and they drew upon uh, the music that was created in a Christian culture. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, drawing upon Bach and other great Baroque music. A lot of the 60s pop had those influences. So it's kind of funny in that all the time that I was obsessing on that Baroque pop, you know, in some sense, that too was part of the longing uh, for what I would ultimately experience uh, in in the church. And too, just like a, a good love song, you know, something can just touch upon real truths and, and beauty oh, about abs- human relationships. Oh, absolutely, because as John Paul showed us with his catechesis on human love and as Benedict showed us with his encyclical God is Love, Deus Caritas Est, um, there is something of God in human loves, in the sense that human love is a desire for union. You know, that doesn't mean that that um, desire um, can't be misdirected. It can, as we know from the scourge of pornography, be horribly misdirected. Uh, but at the same, But at the same time, in terms of love songs, even if it's just a boy-girl uh, song, like the Beach Boys' Wouldn't It Be Nice? There's still a, a hint of transcendence right. in that. What are the, i just ask you one more question about that. Uh, you mentioned about discerning a call to uh, some form of consecrated life. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that, um, I remember you being on the show before. You're very much hoping to get married and things. Uh, Tell us, you know, maybe for young people out there who might be discerning the call as well, what does it feel like? What does it look like? Um, what's going on there in that call? <laughs> That's a great question, Father, and it's uh, particularly um, relevant for me because I now realize that for many years I had a misunderstanding about what it meant to be called uh, to to live in a uh, uh, spousal uh, um, y- union uh, w- with God I- I- through uh, through consecrated uh, chastity. Um, I used to think that I couldn't be called to uh, consecrated uh, chastity because I had never had like a mystical experience. You know, you read a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, and if you read too many stories of saints like Catherine of Siena, uh, you, you start to think that everyone who is called to consecrated chastity has this vision of our Lord with a wedding ring. <laughs> but in real life, what I discovered is that God works through our loves. There is a, a Greek word uh, for that that entered into Christianity um, via Thomas Aquinas and, and before him uh, Arist- Aristotle, uh, God works eudaimonistically, meaning that he works with us through our desires. We might have a certain desire that's um, just a natural human desire, and he purifies that and leads us 
down another path, and then he purifies our desires there and leads us down, it just sort of narrows and narrows the path. And that's what happened with me, uh, because when I was on Life on the Rock in the, in uh, late 2007, um, I did believe that I was going to get married, that that was what I was called to do. But then uh, the following year, I entered school for theology at Dominican House of Studies. And uh, by then, I'd also been giving talks on the thrill of the chaste. And so I started to get drawn to the idea of becoming a theology professor. Partly the writing and the speaking had interested me in that. And then the more I learned theology, the more uh, I really enjoyed it and wanted to share it. And over time, I stopped actively looking for a husband because I realized that I was so attracted to studying and then teaching and to writing and speaking that it wouldn't be really fair to be putting myself out there in terms of um, on the I hate to say this, but on the market for a husband because I wasn't willing to give up all these things that I loved in my life. And then ultimately, I came to to realize that um, perhaps God had been uh, drawing me into wanting to become uh, a professor, wanting to uh, share the truth and beauty of of Catholic theology with others because God, perhaps God wanted me to do this because he really wanted me to be uh, united with him in a spousal way that I couldn't be uh, if I were called to the married state. And that was an amazing feeling to feel that perhaps this is where God wanted me all along. Um, You know, and I think also in order to get to that place, I had to get over my feeling of, oh, well, God couldn't want me because of my past sins, or God couldn't want me because I bear these wounds of abuse. First of all, the wounds of abuse are not my own sins. They're the sins of others against me. So that is not something that could in any way distance me from from God. Um, And secondly, my own sins, now that they're repented, God has forgotten them. That, that is to say, he's chosen to, to for, forget, forget them. Um, he knows they happened, but they don't um, separate me from him because I've repented of them. And so, so um, realizing that, you know, it, that yes, God can want me with all my past, and moreover, it's, a, it's pride to think anything less. It's pride to think that my past sins are, are so great that even God isn't powerful enough to, to, uh, to uh, be able to make me fit for him. Um, if God wants to make me fit to be his spouse, he's the almighty. He can do that. Do you feel personally called like to really be uh, like on mission evangelizing in the heart of the culture. I know you talk about being a professor and things, um, but I, I see your blogging skills and everything <laughs> and your love for music and everything. It just seems like there's a fit kind of directly in the culture for you. Do you feel that at all? Or 
I used to feel that I was called to evangelize directly in the culture, and I certainly want to go wherever God wants me to, and I don't want to close any doors. Uh, it's been very rewarding for me to tour the country and also Canada and England and Ireland speaking about my piece, I Give You Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints. That's something that I would love to continue doing. But uh, although I do want to be open to wherever God's calling me, I'm not sure how immersed in the culture I'm supposed to be because it really takes a lot of effort to just keep up with the culture. Things are changing so quickly uh, in terms of the different kinds of social media, in terms of the popular culture. And I'm so in love now with the theology that I'm learning that I'm not sure if I have the mental energy to be able to keep up the way that others can. And also, I um, have found that I have to really limit my internet use, limit my social media use, because I tend to get uh, addicted to web surfing, where it eats up way too much time if I don't monitor it. And that's another reason why I'm thinking that perhaps I'm not meant to be all the way in the heart of the popular culture, because it would um, distract me too much from the spiritual life. And one last question. <laughs> I remember when I saw your new book, um, it kind of struck me as kind of a, a new discovery for you in dealing with the trauma. Is that the case? Or that, it was something you were dealing with for a long time. I mean, you had remembered it and were mm-hmm. trying to process it. But it seemed like it really came on strong the last few years, didn't it? You, you mean that in the last uh, few few years, I had this new discovery in terms of how to deal with what had been done to me? Yes, well, that's very true. And the learning that I went through in terms of how to deal with the trauma, it really came through entering the Catholic Church and, uh, as I said, realizing there's nowhere else for me to go. This is home. Uh, I was a Protestant for five years uh, before entering the church, and I would church shop. And I'd always think, well, maybe around the corner is the church where I will feel at home. Now, you know, I, I know that that this is where Christ is really present, uh, that the Catholic uh, Church uh, is uh, the the mystical body of, of 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 Christ who is our head, and so once I, I realized, okay, there's nowhere else for me to go. I realized that wherever my healing is going to be, whatever healing I'm going to receive for the rest of my life, is going to be in and through Christ in the church. That doesn't mean that I can't see a therapist if I need to, uh, because certainly particularly with post-traumatic stress disorder, there are medical components to it. Priests aren't usually medical doctors. There are, uh, there are secular s- skills that are real, you know, skills that one may need may need to uh, draw from you know, sometimes. But it does mean that for wounds that are primarily spiritual, uh, that I had to seek the spiritual healing uh, in the church. And so in my piece I give you, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, I talk about how when my 
uh, spiritual life became supercharged through entering uh, the church, I came to discover what uh, John Paul II called the good news of redemptive suffering. This is something that every Catholic needs to know. It's a great truth of our faith, not talked about uh, very often, which is that uh, our wounds take on great meaning in light of the passion of Christ, and that Christ, who is now resurrected and and glorified, uh, he wants all of us. He wants every bit of you and every bit of me, including our wounds, and that the more that we become transparent to Christ, the more that we let him in, the more healing we'll receive. I should add something for listeners, because this is a question that people ask, and it's something I talk about in my piece I give you. Do we have to call up every painful memory in order for Christ to heal them? Now, in my piece I give you, what I say is that when we have a memory come up, absolutely we have to uh, we we have to ask Christ to enter in. But the work is not ours, and what I mean by that is that is that to think that we have to call every memory up or else Christ can't enter in isn't right because we just need to look at the Gospels. How did Christ heal the leper? Did he? Did he have to touch every single wound on that leper's body? No, but the leper did have to have to ask him for healing, and then our Lord touched one wound of that leper, just touched him once, and that wound became the crack that Christ's light got in. For people who have suffered childhood sexual abuse, one may not want to call up every memory because the memories may be entangled. Uh, you know, for me, for many years, I lived in what I would call a sexually porous environment. Um, g- growing up after my parents' divorce, when uh, when I was living with my single mother and uh, there was uh, household nudity, I was exposed to adults' sex talk on a daily basis. So these are not things where I can just call up one memory and have done with it. So for me, it was very helpful to learn that I I have to admit that I am wounded, and I simply, whenever the wounds do come up, ask Christ to enter in and become transparent with him that way, and just trust that he works invisibly so that that even... um, with the wounds that I don't remember, he dwells within me and is healing me and purifying me of those as well. Praise God. Well, thank you so much for uh, chatting with us. Thank you so much, Father. It's, it's great to be with you.